This is the seventh Sunday after Epiphany. This year we're going to really exhaust the Sundays after Epiphany because Easter's late. And so the theme, remember, the, the overarching theme in all of the Sundays, in the Sundays in ordinary time after Epiphany, are about uh, making manifest the presence of God. And thinking about making manifest the presence of God, both in corporate terms as the, as the people of God, is God's people in the world, but also personally, and that this manifestation in some ways is the process where we're able in relationship to uh, bring some of the promises of God to bear on everyday living. Uh, today, the, the readings are about holiness, and so I thought I'd say some things to you about holiness in terms of a way of defining holiness saying some things from the reading from Leviticus. We don't read very often at all from Leviticus in the uh, lectionary for the Eucharist, and some of you may be sighing deeply in relief uh, because of that. But we do have a reading from Leviticus, the third book in the Pentateuch. Paul, again, continuing with the uh, obstreperous congregation in Corinth, and the conclusion of chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is, uh, had begun the Sermon on the Mount, and now he has concluded. I, I made a mistake at 8 and said that uh, Jesus concluded chapter 5. He didn't know there was a chapter 5. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> you know. But we're going to go for another chapter or two in Matthew with the, with the Sermon on the Mount. But today he has some continued ethical teaching that uh, connects to some degree with the reading from Leviticus. And also it has a famous line in, at the very end of the gospel. You must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what might we mean when we use that term? So, holiness comes the word from an English, old English word called, called halogness. And it means to be without blemish or injury. In Hebrew, the word for holiness or holy is kudz, uh, transliterated into uh, our characters QDS. Remember, Hebrew is a consonantal language. Not a continental language, a consonantal language. There are no vowels. And that means that uh, you have to vocalize the text. Uh, where uh, that is present. And so, have I ever told you, I think I have, the great answer to the Jehovah's Witnesses? Why in the world do we use the word Jehovah for God and the claim that Jehovah is the word you got to use or it's curtains, right? In Judaism, when you read the Hebrew Bible, and you come to the word for God, which is Yahweh, in consonants, it's Y-W-H-W. -W. Okay? I think that's it. I'm a little foggy today. But it's, it, but it's consonantal. There are no vowels in it. Um, when there was a decision made to say, you know, we need to help people learn Hebrew, particularly people who don't speak it all the time. And remember, people had stopped speaking Hebrew by the time Jesus was around. 
They didn't speak it. They read it in their sacred literature and at the temple and, and in the synagogue. Jesus spoke Aramaic and Greek, and so Hebrew was not spoken. In Israel today, modern Israel, they speak uh, a version of, of Hebrew, uh, which they have revived. So, YHWH, Yahweh. What would happen is that as you read the text, a pious Jew, a rabbi, or somebody reading, would not say that word. It was impious to say the word, to mention the word God. I have received letters from Orthodox rabbis where they have spelled God G-D. They don't even spell it. They don't use the word. So they, would be, they, they were taught to substitute, when you saw that tetragram, you saw that, you would substitute the Lord, or you would substitute either a Hebrew word called Adonai or the word Elohim. Okay? So you just did that as a matter of course as you learned how to do it. In the 9th century or the 10th century uh, AD, a group of Jews called the Masoretes decided to preserve uh, the Hebrew text and to vocalize the text so that people who learned Hebrew could learn how to insert the vowels at the appropriate place. So if you read a Masoretic text, you'll see a bunch of dots and dashes underneath the Hebrew characters or between the letters, so it tells you what vowels are there. So YHW becomes Yahweh, A and E get added, right? Well, what happened there because of this uh, piety coming in, what they did was they pointed Yahweh with Adonai. So you, you get something roughly like Jehovah, right? So it is hardly, hardly the ancient term for God. Yahweh is the ancient term for God. So that's who we're talking about. That's who Jesus meant and uh, what, what it is. Uh, only the high priest, I think, could say the word. And once a year, he went into the inner sanctum and went, Yahweh, and then sort of stepped out. <laughs> so that, you know, you'd make sure nothing, no lightning would strike. Chutz <laughs> means holy. Hagios in Greek means holy. And those two words for holy have something to do with the idea of being set apart or separation. And also when we use those terms to refer to God, it is to refer to God as completely apart. You know, God is unique. Uh, thought thinking itself, right? And so we don't uh, think of, we, we think of God's separateness and otherness in some ways. And yet the great mystery has always been and even the, the Israelites realized it is this God, self-contained, uh, not needing anything outside, somehow felt uh, the need to extend and to create. And they came to the conclusion somehow that they had a role to play in God's plan for things. So the holiness of God is important to them. They wish to assert that. But they also wish to say in some way as we live our lives, we participate in this holiness and we become holy and that it would be a, a, a goal of the spiritual life for people to seek some form of holiness as they live. Now Christianity has been um, all bound up with this over time and certainly since the Protestant Reformation, a, a type of, of um, holiness, purity, without blemish and stuff has surfaced 
It was present in some of the more uh, hair-raising ascetic practices of early Christianity. There's always been the desire to do uh, something like this. But the Bible really gives us three kinds of holiness that we can talk about. The first one is priestly. And that means the setting apart of a certain group of people for cultic purposes. But also in Christian terms, the, the priesthood of all believers... Uh, through our baptism, we understand ourselves to be a priestly people. And so uh, holiness is something that uh, has to do with our participation in the sacramental life of the church. The second aspect of holiness is uh, prophetic. So that when you think about somebody who is expressing holiness in the world, they would be emphasizing the relationship between worship social justice, and conversion of heart. And the third way of understanding biblically the idea of holiness is, and here's a fancy word, you can keep on ice when you might need it, sapiential. Does that mean all the saps you know or the ones you don't know? <laughs> sapiential means wisdom. Comes from the Greek, right? So that means that we would think about holiness of life perhaps uh, as integrity that we develop under the eye of God, but also I would think it would have something to do with the practical wisdom that you and I cultivate as we live and that we find now comfortable to share with other people, you know, through our experiences, through what we've learned, uh, through our desire to know God's will and purpose for us that somehow we're able to uh, be able to commend this type of wisdom, this practical wisdom. And uh, it's an important thing. So those are ways maybe of appropriating the idea of holiness uh, to some degree. Today in Leviticus, we have uh, a passage which fortunately isn't filled with a whole lot of details about, you know, the... Uh, Essene community where the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Leviticus is full of all this stuff. If you pour a from one a clean jar into an unclean jar, does the stream get contaminated by the unclean jar going back into the? So th this this stuff in Leviticus it gets deep. There's no doubt about that. Um, but today we read sort of miscellaneous. It's kind of upbeat generally. Uh, for, for Le Leviticus, and it, it sort of things about uh, miscellaneous statements, a lot like the Ten Commandments. And what is the one that Jesus will pick up in the Gospel today? You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? As an example. And so Levit Leviticus is setting it up, and Jesus is going to take a commandment like that and in some ways stand it on its head. Because in Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself meant your fellow Israelites. Not everybody, you know. Uh, th this is a difference. Um, every community in this area has a uh, ecumenical Thanksgiving service. And um, in Saratoga a few years ago, before Erna, he's not here today, uh, retired, they were preparing the uh, liturgy for the interfaith service in Saratoga. And so they sent an electronic copy out 
of the of the service and in the service they had you know the prayers of the people the petitions like Pat Waddell uh, led uh, in the liturgy today and one of the petitions was that we pray as Jesus will say here today for our enemies and one of the local rabbis wrote back to the organizers of the worship service and said please remove that we do not pray for our enemies So it's a different view, right? We, we pray for our enemies, and I expect uh, there are a number of pious Jews who do, in fact, pray for their enemies. But uh, some people uh, ha are strict constructionists about these matters. And that's where holiness codes can kind of get us into hot water sometimes. So we always need to stand at some critical distance uh, from that. In the gospel today, Jesus is speaking about, you have heard, another one of these, you have heard, it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That also appears in Leviticus in chapter 24. And here's the interesting thing. In Leviticus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a moderating legal statement because it limited how much vengeance or revenge you could wreak on somebody who had injured you. So it had to be proportionate, right? You know, an eye for an eye, a tooth. So don't kill the guy, pull his tooth out, right? So in one sense, it may have appeared in the ancient Near East to have been an advance. But Jesus said, um, don't do that. Revenge is forbidden. You can't take revenge on people. If, you, if the new law, the new Torah, where the law of love is the operative principle in all that we do, as it said in the Collect today, is the thing that you and I are to be governed by. Very easy to say and very hard to do. In addition to which, um, he tells people to love their neighbors, but not just neighbors like them, but to love everybody. That's also a bitter pill for a great many people. But here you always need to remember an under, a theme that runs underneath Jesus' preaching and teaching. And that is that through him, he is announcing in his words and in his works that God's inclusive saving embrace is for everyone. And that he hasn't just arrived on the scene and sprung this on the people that have heard him and seen his mighty works. He supports what he says from his people's own sacred literature. And so he's, if you read the prophets, holiness, the prophetic aspect of, of holiness, if you read the prophets of Israel like Isaiah, Isaiah said, you know what? God's saving embrace, God's love is for everyone, and that we are to be instruments of God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. So in this teaching today, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he reinforces uh, that necessity to do, you know. A wise priest said to me many years ago, uh, before I came to St. Luke's Church, he was a mentor of mine. He said, you know, David, you need to love the people you serve. And he said to me the old thing, which is true, you know, you need to love everybody. You don't have to like them. 
But he said, the fact, of, the fact of the matter is, God will give you the grace to do this. If you place yourself before him, and he was right, absolutely right. And so this teaching in, in, in Matthew's gospel isn't just for clergy, or for pastors, or for people in the helping professions. It's for everybody. And all, you and I can learn how to do this. So holiness is something that we cultivate as part of the processes of moving in a, a positive direction spiritually. You must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The Greek word in Matthew's gospel for perfect is teleios. It does not mean perfect. Oh, you can translate it as perfect. But it means mature or to come to completion and fullness. And I've mentioned this before to you. You know, perfection is pretty tough, isn't it? And a lot of people have become sick or crazy around perfection and seeking it. But mature might be doable if you think that you have come to some uh, place of maturity or self-understanding and that um, that could be manifested in relationship by learning how not to be so anxious. You know, not in a kind of bored and jaded way, oh, well, I've seen this before. Not that way. But in a way of beginning to see, you know what, uh, God's processes are at work in all people, and we can begin to see how that is, and we should wish to seek that kind of perfection or that kind of maturity. So Jesus today is concluding this portion of the Sermon on the Mount with the call to seek that species of perfection and maturity. Paul in 1 Corinthians today is once again dealing with a group of people who believe they've arrived and haven't. They think that they are spiritually mature. And here's why he's after them. When you say, we believe that we have arrived spiritually, what is the fruit of that arrival? Well, we'll look at the Corinthian church, the church on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement in the New Testament, and we see tension, difficulty, strife, factionalism, and hero worship. And he mentions again today, Paul, Apollos, and he adds Cephas, Peter. They've all been there, and they all have their constituencies. And Paul, it appears, has arrived at least at some level of spiritual maturity because he said this kind of stuff is, is no good. We are fulfilling our godly purposes as missionaries and coming to commend our greatest place of safety and assurance to you. And that's what we should all be grateful for and thankful for. Now, if you don't feel particularly holy, if you're not interested in uh, seeking any species of holiness, you can begin the process and you're doing, it always, you're doing it when you come to church. Because one of the ways we speak of the holiness of the church, in spite of all of its backtracking and uh, scandalous things in history, we have always seen a certain faithfulness to the sacramental system, where each of us make present uh, God's presence in the world in sacramental terms through the Holy Eucharist, through trying to be faithful to our baptismal promises 
and to understanding that somehow God's spirit is made present in community. And so sometimes the best thing to do when you're not feeling particularly holy is to be here and not somewhere else, you know. I've never understood why holiness gets connected up with exclusion. Right? Don't you think that you and I ought to be in the business of laboring to keep people in? We should labor to do that. And that means that uh, even the connection that used to be drawn between making uh, a, a sacramental act of confession and the receiving of Holy Communion is to some degree too juridical, too legalistic. Because the sacrament in and of itself has healing power. And that's why it's important for us to receive it, you know. So perhaps while it's not a non-issue, thinking about worthiness or your degree of holiness is subordinate to that embrace that Jesus speaks of in the gospel today in the, the concluding part of chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, give thanks for the opportunity to seek the holiness and the maturity that you're called to. Amen. Mm -hmm.